This is hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. Prove us wrong, please, seriously, by emailing me at chuck at thisishell.com because I really can't take all the stress caused by being God's favorite radio show. It's just, it's just too much. I'm always worried about what I'm going to say and if it's going to make her angry, and I cannot take all that pressure. This week, as reported in the New York Times, Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro is taking steps to steal this fall's presidential election in Brazil, including the enlistment of Brazil's military leadership into his plot to undermine the electoral process in attempting a military coup. Bolsonaro is a huge fan of the former military dictatorship, so this desperate move does not come as a surprise to many analysts of Brazilian politics. As our guest today points out, Bolsonaro is currently trailing former president and current opposition leader Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva by 21 points in the polls. So things are not looking good for Bolsonaro's re-election. And as this October's vote gets closer, Bolsonaro is doing everything he can to hand over the largest generation energy generation company in Latin America, responsible for almost 40% of the energy consumed in Brazil to the private sector, to Wall Street, which explains Wall Street's support for the far-right-wing government and past far-right-wing governments in Brazil. But it's not only Wall Street that wants the far-right neoliberal government of Bolsonaro in power. It's groups like the Canadian Government Workers' Pension Fund that desires further privatization of Brazil's energy sector, including both its state-owned national gas and electric companies. There are even reports that Bolsonaro discussed the undermining of the upcoming election with President Joe Biden at the uh, recent so-called Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. So what does this all mean for the average Brazilian? Well, according to Lula, it means that the current hunger crisis in the country will force the public to choose between buying either food or energy as the prices of both skyrocket. In a few minutes, we will get an update on all things Brazil from our correspondent in Brazil, Brian Muir. Brian is an editor and contributor to the book Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. At least I think that's still all accurate. Brian's most recent writing includes the Brazil Wire article, Brazilian Army Resumes Election Threats. He also edited the spring 2022 edition of Lumpen Magazine, which is titled The International Issue, and features not only uh, writers from around the world, but also a piece by Jeff Dorchin, our very own Jeff Dorchin, with the headline, Schismopolitan Awakens, uh, Awakening. Uh, 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 Dorchin uh, uh, also... Uh, an article by Brian himself, No War But Class War, and writing from me, titled, Is This Hell? How a Low-Budget Chicago Radio Show Became a Conduit for International Dissent. Brian was on This Is Hell most recently back in July of last year. I can't believe it's been that long. When we spoke with him about his writing, including COVID-19 scandal, Brazilian military threatens Senate days after visit by CIA director, you can find out uh, uh, find all of our, well, at least last six years of interviews with Brian, at thisishell.com when you search on Mir, M-I-E-R. Follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Talisur. Find Brazil Wire online at brazilwire.com, that's with an S, and Telesur English at telesurenglish.net. And you can download 
the most recent issue of Lumpen Magazine, the one that Brian edited, the one that Jeff and I both appear in, at lumpenmagazine.org. I'm your bitter, blind, broke radio show, gap-toothed radio show host, live streaming host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, what's new about you? Uh, well, I guess I just feel pretty at home because it's been like 100 degrees here <laughs> the last couple of days. Because you're from Phoenix. Indeed, yeah. It's we- been a pra- crazy couple of days. Full moon, tornado, heat storm, you know. You, you never get storms like this in Arizona, do you? Actually, you get storms like this every year in Phoenix in the summertime. They're called monsoons. It was very similar to that. I was having like flashbacks during that storm. Um, suddenly a very big storm with air pressure changes. Um, so do so. you have PTSD from living in Phoenix? <laughs> I mean, is that what the P- think, is that what the P I stands think, for? Yeah, I don't, but I, I don't know. I think everybody there has a, a complex type of PTSD, <laughs> whether it's from the storms or not. As for me, I'm looking forward to attending an unofficial This Is Hell office hours, our meet and greet, which is really a drink and think, this evening. This evening, Wednesday evening, uh, downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. As we are streaming live right now at thisishell.com, and as I said, it's Wednesday. If you are listening to the Saturday morning world broadcast, broadcast, premiere of This Is Hell on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment. Don't get too excited as office hours unofficially and officially uh, happens on Wednesdays, not Saturdays. However, if you are a listener to our WNUR broadcast, I will be at another unofficial office hours next Wednesday, June 30th. This Is Hell office hours will return officially on Wednesday, August 24th. Following my upcoming surgery and recovery and what will be a much-needed vacation, sure, you might be thinking, you know, as I am, why the hell do you need a vacation? You were just out of of work for two months while you were hospitalized and recuperating. Well, being in the hospital and then bedridden and in constant pain, unable to walk even the one block from my home to our studios here, that's no vacation. In fact, it's the opposite of vacation. It's a lot of work that is not only physically punishing, but emotionally and spiritually grueling. So if you are listening to our live stream right now or our podcast shortly after, drop by This Is Hell Office Hours this evening, Wednesday, June, what is it, 15th? Or you can uh, drop by again next uh, Wednesday. That's June 22nd. Next Wednesday is not June 30th, June 22nd. And if you cannot make it tonight, celebrate the return turn of This Is Hell Office Hours on Wednesday, uh, official This Is Hell Office Hours, on Wednesday, August 24th, and any Wednesday following that and throughout the rest of the year. It's all very complicated, so you might want to rewind that and hear that. I can already hear Brian's voice, but we'll get to Brian in just a moment. Lindsay, uh, it, it took, uh, it looks like uh, producers Sebastian Vupper, Dan Hill, Alexander Jerry, they are all going to be here tonight. I think the Illinois state representative for our district is going to be there as well, Ram Villavalam, as he's having some kind of meet and greet simultaneously, and a past guest on the show, Jacobin writer uh, Maximilian Alvarez may be joining us as well. Is there any chance that you may be over here in the scorching heat drinking with us? Uh, I mean, with this amount of pressure, I have to ask my <laughs> boss to get off work early, though. You guys starting early at 6.30. No, nah, why don't you come over at like 
later than that because the heat warning is still until 8 p.m. this evening. So how so. long do you think you're going to last out there? I'm going to try, try to be here till about 10. Okay. All right. Yeah, I can come then. All right. More important than any of that, please remind us, what is this week's question from Helen? Tell us how a couple of our listeners are responding so far. Let's see this week's question from Hal. I have to find it. So. I'm going to go turn off the air conditioner <laughs> while you're looking for that. Hold one second. Here it is. It's this week's question from Hal. What crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? What crimes? I'll wait for Chuck to get back. <laughs> I'm back. What crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? Uh, okay, I should maybe check Twitter for you want some responses now at this moment uh, let's get to him after Brian okay the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want that this is hell t-shirt the tote bag the face mask or face covering the coffee mug that this is hell guide to the 21st century featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s the trucker's cap the winter beanie or toque if you prefer you can check out all of our stuff right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can tweet it at us at this is hell radio or you can just email it to us during today's show at this is hell radio at gmail.com but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment jeff does some cheap self-care. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers following our conversation with Brian on what the hell is happening in Brazil. Again, the question from hell is, what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? What crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com with your guest or topic suggestions as well. Comments on the show, constructive or destructive criticism, will likely share your thoughts on air. We're hearing from more of you who want to have your art considered for the upcoming This Is ha- This Is Art Art Show, which is opening on Saturday, July 23rd, during the 50th anniversary party at Carrie's Lounge, and then closing on the last Saturday of summer, September 17th, during the This Is Hell anniversary party. Jan writes, Hi Chuck et al. I've been listening to your This Is Hell show for a few years now. I found it via Best of the Left probably eight years ago. I've learned so much that it is ridiculous. Thank you. It is ridiculous. This is hell is a gift to us all. So your art show at Carrie's is on my birthday, September 17th, but I can't come, I don't think, since I live in London. I am from the States, though. Maybe I'll try to be there. Anyway, I am uh, starting a chamber music pro- uh, project. It's called Jarek, Z-A-R-E-K, after my great-uncle Emil. Uh, I made some videos, and would you be interested in showing them at your art show? You can find them at onjam.tv slash Z-A-R-E-K and a pound sign. Thanks, Jan. I am assuming you're in London, England, not London, Ontario, Canada, or London, Ohio, or London, Kentucky, or London, Arkansas. But in any case, I have forwarded your video to the person who is curating this year's This Is Art. Also, thanks for the kind words about This Is Hell. And oddly, I too had a great uncle, Emil, which again is very weird because seriously, who names their kid after poppers? And I'm I'm starting to think Emil Nitrate was a lot more popular in the early 20th century than anybody ever thought. No wonder they were the greatest generation. They were all hopped up on Rush. 
Coming up, hey, uh, <laughs> coming up, what is going on right now in Brazil? We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth will tell you who is scheduled to be on next week's show. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell, live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is hell. Stop the steal. That is stop the steal of Brazil's upcoming presidential election this fall. And this undermining of a presidential election is not fake news. And I think I just threw up a little bit by saying stop the steal and fake news in the same tease. But what will make Brazilians sick to their stomach is if current President Jair Bolsonaro successfully commits a coup in October, which looks like the only way he can possibly hold on to office as he is being trounced in the polls by former President Lula. Here to get us caught up on what's happening in Brazil, Brian Meir is an editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program, Brazil correspondent for This Is Hell. Welcome back, Brian. I can't, can't believe it's been so long. It's been almost a year since we hung out. I know. It's crazy. I was really worried about you. I'm glad to see you back on the air. Yeah, I'm still worried about me because I could still die. I love when you go to, you talk to your surgeon before a surgery and they say, you know, just so you know, you could die. I don't really need that information before a surgery. Do you, Brian? Well, my friend's Italian grandmother on the north side of Chicago used to always tell him the story of her brother who was walking down the street in Italy and was hit by a fallen brick and died. To point out that you could just die anytime anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, of course you could die. <laughs> Thank you for that reassuring thought. That's a great way to start our conversation. You could today. die crossing the street on the way to the doctor's office. <laughs> I definitely could with my vision. I've almost died yeah, on numerous right. occasions. I almost got run over by a, a police car the other day <laughs> at uh, Bell and Devon because uh, the I guy blew it. right through a stop sign. <laughs> So, I believe it. <laughs> so the introduction to your most recent writing at Brazil Wire states one day after Brazil's President Bolsonaro assured U.S. President Biden he won't tamper with the electoral system, Defense Minister General Paulo Oliveira uh, attacked the electoral courts for refusing to let the military tamper with elections. So in your opinion, is Jair Bolsonaro lying to President Biden or does he have no control over the military or is it something else? I think it's cognitive dissonance as a psyops tactic in which for the last three and a half years, he's been sending mixed messages all the time. He always says something and then it hits the news cycle for 24 hours. And then someone from his government comes on and says, oh, that isn't what he meant. That isn't what he really said. He doesn't mean that, you know, and it's just another example because, but in this case, he definitely, those were definitely his orders. Now the New York Times article, I have to give credit where credit is due. I don't know if you've ever noticed, I'm not a big fan of the New York Times. <laughs> slightly, slightly. <laughs> but, but in this case, you know, kudos to them for releasing this article now instead of one month after the coup, which is what they normally have done for the last 70 years in Latin America. After working to normalize any coup, a month after it happens, they run this hand-wringing op-ed, oh, the horror, look what's happening. You know, at least they're, even they're warning about it now. But it's not new. The military, in consort, you know, in collusion with Bolsonaro, who is in charge, who's military himself, you know, in charge of the most militarized government since 
before the end of the dictatorship. I mean, the, the last military dictator in the early 80s, he had less military generals in his cabinet than Bolsonaro does today, right? So they've been attacking the elections ever since, you know, basically ever since January 6th. Even before, they were preemptively attacking the elections using Trump-like strategies under the guidance of Steve Bannon, who was helping them as he announced, as he was introducing Flavio Bolsonaro on stage at that Mike Lindell event in South Dakota last year, when he said Brazil's the second most important election in, in the world this year. Um, we know that uh, Bolsonaro has been attacking the integrity of the elections the entire time in the opposite way that Trump did. So what he's saying is that um, the paper ballot system is far superior to the electronic voting system uh, because it's less susceptible to fraud. And so we have to return to paper ballot. You know, even though there's never been a case of a proven case of election fraud committed on these electronic ballot systems in Brazil have been used since 1996, uh, all, of the, all of the ballot boxes are independent. They don't hook up to any kind of network. They have to be tallied separately. So the most a hacker could do would be like to screw up one ballot box. It would be impossible for a hacker really, or nearly impossible to you know, alter the entire system. But he's insisting because he's trying to get this insurrection underway when he loses. He knows he's gonna lose. Um, women are now two to one in favor of Lula. Po the poor are 70% in favor of Lula. Even evangelical Christians are split 50-50 now. In 2018, it was like, 80% of evangelicals voted for Bolsonaro. He's lost a huge chunk of their support even. So, Brian, uh, yeah. you, you were mentioning Steve Bannon earlier. What do you think we uh, is missed here in the U.S. establishment mainstream media when they are not reporting on uh, Steve Bannon having more, and this Trumpism, if you will, having more of an international scope and not just here within the United States? What's missed in the lack of that reporting? A lot, right? I mean, <clears throat> I think there's been some reporting on in the U.S. on the relationship between Bolsonaro's children and Steve Bannon, right? Has there not been anything? I, I mean, I can't believe that. Nothing. I can't believe that. That. <laughs> I mean, okay. Flavio Bolsonaro was at the War Council meeting the night before the January sixth Capitol incursion. He was there with Mike Lindell and Sidney Powell and all those. Giuliani, he was at that meeting. You know, I mean, that didn't make that that had to have made the news somewhere. OK, anyway, I'm shocked. But. But I mean, that's insane. You know, they had a CPAC in Brazil three days before they tried to stage an incursion against the Supreme Court last September 7th. And some of Trump's top, you know, financers were there. And uh, two of them even got arrested and questioned by the federal police on the way out of the country to see if they had any relationship with the incursion on the Supreme Court that took place. So uh, this stuff, although the New York Times reports that it's this new strategy being used by Bolsonaro to employ the military in this, the big untold story is just the, the, the influence of the military in this government. I mean, he's, this is this government the person in charge of all of his COVID response was a military general with no medical experience, okay? 
He's put military generals in charge of all kinds of key departments, and he's even got them. He's even got the military involved in the election auditing system already. So, I mean, I'll give you an example of military. Last July, the then Minister of Defense, General Braga Neto, sent a threatening letter to Congress saying that if they don't switch over the paper ballot by next year, the military is not going to recognize the results of the election. You know, and this coming in a country that, you know, was ruled by a bloody dictatorship, propped up by the U.S., of course, until 1985. There, there was never any amnesty for any of the officers who were involved in torture and disappearances. Around officially more than 8,000 people were killed by military for political reasons during the dictatorship. None of them ever got punished. You know, all of these generals on Bolsonaro's staff, Bolsonaro himself was a, an army captain during the dictatorship. And all the generals on his staff are people who were active players during the dictatorship. You know, because <laughs> they, they all got amnesty at the end. So it, it, the, really, and okay, so the vice president, you see this thing going on with Don Phillips and um, Bruno Pereira disappeared in the Amazon, right? The vice president of Brazil, General Hamilton Morão, was the military commander of the Amazon region before he became vice president. And he's close friends with the owner of the biggest gold company in Brazil that's monopolized the uh, distribution of Amazonian gold illegally mined on indigenous reservations into the international value chain, you know, into the international markets. So that this is a heavily militarized government right now. And the fact that the military has been threatening the Supreme Court, the election courts, and threatening not to respect the results of an election should have been something that's been appearing in the news now for over two years. But at least, like I said, the New York Times is bringing it up now. I have a feeling the author didn't make that headline, because if you read the article, it's a pretty good article. And he doesn't imply that this is a new thing in the article. It seems like the editors at New York Times made this flashy clickbait headline about a new threat. When the fact is, huh? yeah, go ahead. When there's nothing new about it, exactly. But no. new is a thing. Just it's like, it's like having the word free in an advertisement. It's the kind exactly. of thing that catches people's eye. Now I'm I know that you're going to be shocked by this, but. I seriously doubt that many of our, our listeners know about the disappearances in uh, the Amazon. Can you fill people in on what happened with Don Phillips and uh, his uh, compatriot in the Amazon? I know, yeah, I know, yeah. I, I know you have to, t- it's exasperating, I know. Well, okay, On, during the same week that Joe Biden praised Jair Bolsonaro's Amazon preservation efforts, which is outrageous, right? <laughs> I mean, I was covering the fires in Rondonia in 2019 when the whole half of that state went up in smoke. Um, That same week, uh, Dom Phillips, who was a long, kind of conservative, pretty conservative Guardian, Washington Post, and occasional New York Times reporter on Brazil, been living in Brazil for 14 years, I think. he was working on a book about sustainable development in the Amazon. And he teamed up with this legendary, you know, uh, indigenous rights activist, Bruno Pereira, who was in charge of 
the Department of Remote Tribes and Uncontacted Tribes, of which there are many still left in the Amazon, right? People don't have any contact with the West. They're still living like Stone Age. Um, he, he was fired by Bolsonaro for shutting down an illegal gold mine on the Yanomami Reservation, kicking hundreds of illegal gold miners out. Um, and he had gotten this job as a advisor to the indigenous union near this um, Valley du Javari, which is the second largest indigenous reservation in the Amazon. And uh, they were going around, you know, visiting different people and stuff, and they just disappeared last Sunday. And uh, Bruno had been such, so hated among the miners and the loggers and the agribusiness people and stuff that they'd actually made t-shirts with his image on them and a, a target on his forehead, right? And it looks like they went out, the, the indigenous people there told them that they should be careful, that they should have armed guards with them. And, uh, and Bruno and Dom were kind of like, no, we're just gonna get in and out really quick. We'll leave early in the morning, it'll be okay. They took off at like six in the morning by boat and just never showed up at the, at the next town, which was only two hours away. And it looks like they were ambushed and killed. Uh, and, you know, uh, I like, for example, I, Dom Phillips is someone who we've criticized his journalism a lot, but he was in, involved in a noble thing at that moment, a noble project of trying to report on this genocide that's underway against indigenous, remote indigenous tribes in the Amazon by people in the gold and lumber industries encouraged by the Bolsonaro government when he disappeared, presumed dead. And so it's just like, I mean, it's turning into a big thing because the Bolsonaro government, I mean, okay, hundreds of indigenous rights activists have been murdered since Bolsonaro took office, right? This is the first time an international journalist has been murdered reporting on this um, in the last couple of years. But, you know, um, the Bolsonaro government was very lackadaisical in its initial response. The first thing Bolsonaro said was he tried to kind of like blame it on them for taking too many chances. And then there's huge military presence in that area because it's near the border, but it took them like 48 hours to show up with a military search party. And there's this growing international clamor you know, even like U2 has gotten into the fray and Anita and some popular celebrities and stuff, like why can't they find the bodies at least or, you know, find them? So it's just outrageous that, that you know, like three days after that hit the international news cycle. I mean, it's been in, it may not have been headlines in New York Times, it's been in New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian, CNN, everything that Biden would just sit there and praise Bolsonaro's Amazon policies. Yeah, it's just outrageous. Yeah, that's pretty incredible, especially as we all know that Bolsonaro has had, I mean, immediately upon getting in office, he started destroying the Amazon. So if Bolsonaro succeeds in what you describe as preemptively undermining this year's election, what do you think will happen? Will there be protests? And if so, how do you think the, the Bolsonaro government that would be still holding on to power, how do you think that the government would respond? With his level of unpopularity right now, the only way to maintain power would be through a vicious military clampdown like 1964 all over again. 
And that's what's got people, a lot of people are beginning to worry that like Lula's going to win the election and the military won't let him take power. So is and there people are wondering like, is which side is the U.S. on on this? Right, because that's the thing, is that Joe Biden has uh, supposedly, well, we'll get to that in a little bit, but Joe Biden has supposedly said that he is against the coup. You report how the CIA director said that uh, he is against the coup. Uh, what do you, how would the United States benefit from Bolsonaro staying in office as opposed to Lula becoming president? More privatizations. Bolsonaro right now is promising to fully privatize the state petroleum company, which is, you know, the main reason the U.S. has been at you know, full spectrum hybrid war against Venezuela for the last 20 years. It wants Venezuela to privatize petroleum company. It's the reason why the CIA assassinated or held its first coup in the 50s because Iran didn't want to privatize its petroleum company. It's the reason we invaded, one of the reasons we invaded Iraq. Iraq didn't want to privatize its petroleum company. So like with Bolsonaro promising to privatize the petroleum company, that should be enough to get at least part of the U.S. government thinking, oh, maybe we should just help this guy, right? And uh, the, the ironic thing is the main beneficiary of Bolsonaro's privatiz- massive privatization since he took office in 2019, adding to the massive privatizations that started after the 2016 coup against Dilma Rousseff, is that since 2019, China has pretty much use these privatizations to vastly expand its foothold in Brazil. And now it's just a much more important trade partner than the U.S. is. The U.S. was the most important trade partner of Brazil up until around 2012. But now it's like it's completely switched. Like in, in terms of, for example, one commodity that's really big in Brazil, soy. China's now buying like four times more soy from Brazil than the U.S. is. And the only companies that have bought the privatized offshore petroleum fields that were you know, privatized since Bolsonaro took office, it's all been Chinese state companies. So privatizations at this point don't automatically help the US anymore like they did 20 years ago. And uh, you know, even Electrobras, like the US wasn't among the top buyers of Electrobras, the state electric company, which was privatized last week. You know, you would think if the U.S. was like pushing Bolsonaro and hoping he'd privatize more stuff, then they would be a major buyer or U.S. companies would be a major buyer. But the, the biggest buyer of stock in Electrobras was the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, followed by, as you mentioned in the intro, Canadian Pension Fund. So if this is if this has been helping China more than anyone else and President Biden uh, back in, I believe, February said that the big and prior to that said that the biggest security threat or biggest challenge to the United States right now is China. What explains to you why the United States would want to see continued privatization of uh, Brazil if it's going to only benefit who the per- the country that is supposedly the United States biggest competitor and biggest concern? The best explanation I can think is just that the U.S continually shoots itself in its own foot on foreign policy, like it did with financing the Taliban, siding with Saddam Hussein against Iran in the Iran-Iraq war. You know, tons of other examples you could give. But the, the economic agenda that they worked to impose on Brazil after the 2016 coup, which they supported, didn't benefit the U.S. as much as they had planned. And also, I don't think they initially planned on having someone like Bolsonaro come into power. They thought it was going to be a center-right 
neoliberal, like uh, from the PSDB party, which imploded after Trump won the election. Because all the people in the PSDB who orchestrated that coup, you know, were negotiating with the Obama administration at the time. They weren't prepared for, the, for Trump to take over. And that left this vacuum, which Bolsonaro and the fascists stepped into. It's power vacuum. So that's another example of like something not working out the way the U.S. planned in Brazil. I mean, look at like these sanctions, right? They're sanctioning so many, the U.S. is sanctioning so many people right now that's created a new economic block of all these sanctioned countries doing business with each other. You know, Venezuela wouldn't be doing so much business with Iran right now if it weren't for the fact that they're all being sanctioned. It's like the sanctions club. <laughs> it's so, turned into this major economic block and they're abandoning the dollar which is going to really screw up the US yeah and it's the the misguided belief that economic sanctions is something that is desirable that is something it's war against a country without actually being at war so we can have these yeah. uh, uh, you know velvet overthrows of government around the world governments around the world through economics but in reality they can be just as devastating to the uh, domestic population that the sanctions are against as well as pushing those countries farther and farther or further and further away from the United States you wrote that, that earlier this year on May 5th Reuters ran a story claiming that during a July 2021 meeting between CIA director William Burns and top, uh, top officials of the Bolsonaro administration, Burns, CIA D Director Burns had asked the Bolsonaro government to stop trying to undermine this year's presidential election. Why, in your opinion would, opinion, would the CIA not want a coup in Brazil by the military that keeps Bolsonaro in power? Yeah, you wonder if that's not just like preemptive. There's a, I mean, I can only speculate, right? Like, I'm not saying I have a master theory about this. There's two ways you could look at that. One, well, first of all, it's worth mentioning that the Brazilian military denies that he even did that. Secondly, Reuters only released this almost a year after the fact, at a time when new threats were being made against the election, electoral process here. You know, that was only released, that article was released like a month ago when Reuters was like, oh yeah, last year the CIA warned blah, 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 blah. So maybe that was preemptive, like, oh, we're just covering our tracks to show that we have nothing to do with this process. Or maybe, you know, due to the pressure from the Progressive Caucus and other Democratic lawmakers who have strong connections to the AFL-CIO, who's been fighting really hard on this, some people in the administration are thinking that really wouldn't be a good idea for Bolsonaro to get reelected, you know? But it would be weird if, like, the U.S. stepped in to, uh, <laughs> you know, to stop an election being stolen by a right-wing party in Latin America in favor of a left-wing party. I mean, that would maybe be the first time in the history of U.S.-Latin America geopolitical relations, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Unless they think that Lula could turn into a new Tony Blair or Bill Clinton, and just completely sell out the PT party and destroy the PT party and turn it into this, you know, clone of the Democrats, which is what they had planned for the Fernando Higi Cardoso and the PSDB party and stuff like that. I mean, that's another possibility, like let them win, don't get involved so that PT can win, but then completely usurp them from in the inside after the election. 
Well, how you know, how much is Lula anti-U.S.? I mean, how much of a threat do you really think he is to U.S. interests? Because when he was in power, he didn't turn out to be as, you know, there were even people on the left who were uh, critical of what he was doing while he was in power. So how much of a threat could he be uh, to the United States? Well, Lula is basically a social democrat, which I guess American hipsters call democratic socialist these days. Um, <laughs> but what it shows is that the U.S. is never satisfied with any government that doesn't completely sell out all of its natural resources to empire, right? Because he wasn't that anti-big business. He was kind of like, what he cared about was sovereignty and good social safety nets. You know, he didn't like, you know, appropriate the means of production. They didn't seize the fiat and Ford factories and turn them over to the workers or something. You know, he didn't eliminate the dollar in foreign exchange or anything like that. But he did, together with Hugo Chavez, defeat the FTAA, the Free Trade Agreement of the Americas, which was a big thing the Democrats wanted. You know, he did refuse to privatize the petroleum company or something else that the U.S. wanted. So things like that would make him seem less, you know, not that desirable to the U.S. But I remember at the time, someone from the World Bank told me that they actually liked Lula and the Kirshners because they offered a kind of um, more moderate alternative to Hugo Chavez. You know, so it looks like they really just opened up the floodgates against all the left governments in Latin America, all the moderate left governments after Chavez died. But it seems like there was some use for them at some point because exactly as you said, he wasn't that, I mean, he wasn't like a radical leftist or anything. So, and at Brazil Wire, you also write that if the reports of uh, the meeting between Biden and Bolsonaro are accurate, Bolsonaro portrayed himself as a protector of U.S. interests over those of Brazil, which would present further difficulties for the beleaguered far-right president. Uh, are Brazilians across the political uh, spectrum, uh, are they in opposition to politicians who support U.S. interests in Brazil? Uh, I think um, there, there's something in Brazil that's really popular in the middle class, and it's really a product of the brainwashing that took place during the military dictatorship when the state kind of monopolized control over the media, which is that they call it the stray dog complex, where Brazilians feel that because they're ethnically mixed, you know, they're not as pure as Americans and Americans are better. And, you know, there's this kind of inferiority complex that has a big chunk of the middle class, you know, treating Disney World as if it was Mecca. You know, you're not in the middle class unless you bring your family to Disney World at least once. And, you know, other things like that. So there are some, you know, I would say maybe 25, 30 percent of the electorate solidly supports the U.S. over everything, unfortunately. You know, because most people in the U.S. don't even know where Brazil is or think they speak Spanish down here or something. You know, they think, you know, Rio de Janeiro is near Acapulco. 
<laughs> I had a DePaul student mention that to me once at the party. How far is Rio from Acapulco? I always wanted to go there. <laughs> You're a university student, man. It's like 7,000 miles. <laughs> so you, you also write that it was, uh, you write about how uh, Wall Street backed neo-fascist Jair Bolsonaro for the presidency so enthusiastically as they had the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff before that. So uh, what do you think the chances are that the U.S. CIA director Burns and the Bush, uh, or Bush, uh, Biden administration uh, are in conflict with Wall Street over the future of Brazil and support for Bolsonaro? Might Wall Street support the military undermining this fall's presidential election, but the Biden administration and the CIA do not? I like your Freudian slip with Bush <laughs> and Biden. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> um, Look, my take, and I think you might be reading an, ar an article that wasn't written by me, that was written by my co-editor, Dan. If it doesn't have my name on it, it's not my article. When you talk about this stuff you just said. But uh, there, I think we're in a situation where there's conflict among the business community and the government, U.S. government, about what to do in Brazil. I don't think the entire business community wants Brazil to be completely destabilized um, because some sectors of the business community did really well under the PT governments, right? Um, you know, and uh, I think if you look, I think it's in the interest of some sectors of the business community that Brazil has a good economy. Whereas this year, the, the UN predicts it's gonna have the third worst GDP figures in the world and the worst in the Americas. And, you know, like over a trillion dollars in annual GDP has been sucked out of the country since the 2016 coup. So I feel like there's probably some sectors in the Brazilian and US business elites that don't want Bolsonaro. Anyone who does any long-term or mid-term planning would be worried about ripping down the largest source of oxygen in the, in the world right now at a moment when climate change is going on. Um, and I feel like the Democratic Party is in internal conflict over what to do still. I'm sure that some sectors of the DNC would rather see Bolsonaro reelected, although the big issue down here is this new Cold War, you know, like which side are you going to take against China? Are you going to join us in sanctions against Russia? And nobody's doing that. Like neither Lula nor Bolsonaro is going to get on board with that. So that, that would have been something, if Bolsonaro had done it, uh, that I'm sure they would have helped him get reelected, but he's not even doing that. Um, so I just feel like it's, it's up in the air right now. The fact that Lula is leading by this far is a good sign. It means it's going to be a lot harder to steal the election. There's some voices inside the Democratic Party that are sympathetic to Lula winning the election, I'm sure. You know, Deb, um, Deb Holland, Hank Johnson, Chuy Garcia, uh, you know, pro other progressives, Raul, Raul Grijalva, pronounce it like it's Portuguese. Um, but surprisingly, oh, and Ilian Omar, they've all been really, you know, faithful to uh, standing in solidarity with Lula when he was politically imprisoned, you know, Complain, writing a bunch of letters of complaint, opening an investigation in Congress into U.S. involvement in Lula's imprisonment and stuff like that. But they're not a big enough group to really 
influence things that much. So it's hard to say what's going to happen at this point. What I hope is that the Biden administration just gets so confused that it just says, well, we're, we're going to only intervene minimally in this election. And if that happens, uh, you know, Lula will clearly win. And if it, it refuses to give the green light to the Brazilian military, I'm pretty sure the Brazilian military wouldn't just act on its own if it wasn't authorized by we, someone in the U.S. We know? are we are speaking with Brian Muir. Brian Brian's most recent writing at Brazil Wire includes the article "Brazilian Army Resumes Election Threats." You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. So, sovereignty and self sufficiency aside, what would be the impact on Brazil's economy? If both the state energy giant Electrobras and uh, uh, the state oil giant Petrobras were privatized, how would that affect people's everyday lives within Brazil? Well, hunger and famine is now back almost to the point it was when I first moved to Brazil in the 90s. Um, 33 million people are living in extreme poverty now, up from 19 million when Bolsonaro took office and around 6 million when Michel Temer took office. Uh, so what that would mean is there'd be more, the, the main effects will be felt, just like with the sanctions they're doing in other parts of the world, would be felt by the poor, more growth stunting in children, uh, more you know, economic, more environmental disaster the, uh, you know, in the Amazon, which affects the whole world. Uh, that kind of grim picture, I think. More, I think it would Bolsonaro would read it like a green light to increase repression against the LGBTQI community, uh, Afro Brazilians, things like that. It would be. I think it would get a lot worse if he manages to hold on to power. Also in Brazil, where it's reported in January 2019, Wall Street lobby and think tank Council of the Americas was breathless in its praise of Paulo Guedes and the economic policy of the incoming Bolsonaro regime. Uh, they also quote that uh, America's quarterly editor-in-chief and Council of America's vice president of policy, Brian Winter, uh, wrote that to the attendees of the World Economic Forum this week in Davos, you will meet a man who seems destined to change Brazil for the better. Again, this is back in January of 2019. Brilliant and disciplined, he has put together a truly first-rate team in just three weeks in office. He seems to have correctly diagnosed what ails the world's most disappointing large economy of recent years. There in the Swiss Alps, he will present his plan uh, for fixing it. You will likely be dazzled. This man's name is Paulo Guedes. This is the gentleman that is described as Bolsonaro's Chicago boy economy minister. Uh, would would you agree with the assessment that in 2019, <laughs> Brazil was the world's most disappointing large economy of recent years? And did Guedes fix it? Well, I think it was the most disappointing economy because of the coup, because of the paralysis of all of Brazil's largest and most strategic industries by U.S.-backed and trained Judge Sergio Moro as part of the Operation Car Wash in 2015, which caused 3 million job losses just in that year. Um, the economy was doing poorly. And obviously, the worst possible thing you can do in a recession is implement these Milton Friedman-style cuts to all of the social spending, which is exactly what they did, which exacerbated it deeply, even before um, 
Geddes took office, they were implementing this, you know, they call it Chicago School, you know, neoliberal economics, that were really the birthplace of Reagan is Reaganomics and Thatcherism, University of Chicago's economics department. Um, and Geddes was actually got his PhD at University of Chicago Department of Economics under Milton Friedman in the 70s. He's widely considered to be the most mediocre of Friedman's Chicago boys. You know, and he's so he applied that dogmatic, you know, ridiculous formula of free markets, you know, deregularization, privatization, and it nosedived Brazil. So when 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 Dilma was present, Dilma Rousseff was present, Brazil had moved up to the sixth largest economy in the world. It had even passed up the UK at one point. And now it's down to like 11th. It's down below Russia now. <clears throat> and that's, you know, that's what happens when you, as the lost decade of the 80s or the 90s, whatever, in the third, in the developing world showed, the best way to destroy a country is by implementing austerity during a recession because it removes all this money from circulation and creates a snowball effect. And that's what they did in Brazil, so. Also on the Wall Street Lobby Council of the Americas, <clears throat> uh, mem one of the members, Barings Bank, is quoted uh, proclaiming Jair Bolsonaro's election as Brazil's president in October 2018 was momentous. This was the first time since the establishment of their con the country's 1988 constitution uh, constitution in the wake of the overthrow and the end of, I should say, the end of the Brazilian dictatorship, that a clear right-leaning mandate had won a national vote. Many market commentators have recognized that his appointment has the potential for positive economic transformation. That's the appointment of economy minister Paulo Guedes. Uh, is uh, Barings Bank and the Council of the Americas and Wall Street in general opposed to Brazil's constitution? And if so, why? What is it about the constitution that they do not support? Well, uh, according to the Constitution, the social function of property uh, has to be prioritized over the profit motive. It's illegal to evict a family from their only home. If buildings are left empty for five years and the owners aren't up to date with their real estate taxes, they can be squatted in and ownership turned over to the squatters with fin government funding for. Uh, conversion to uh, dignified, in the language of the Constitution, housing units. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. The, the Brazilian Constitution is really advanced. The big problem is that it's not enforced as much as it should be. You know, like um, city budgets have to be, um, uh, citizens have the right to like vote on their government budgets and deliberate the budget. It has to be opened to the public before it's ratified. The public has the right to make amendments to a budget. But these, these, these kinds of things traditionally have only been respected in governments run by the Workers' Party since 1989. And yeah, Geddes doesn't believe in the Constitution. And what this really shows is just that big business and fascism always walk hand in hand, always have, you know? And the New York Times even cheer-led for, for Bolsonaro a, a bit. You know, markets overjoyed with prospect of Bolsonaro victory. Um, but it's important to note that he's definitely not the first right-wing president of Brazil since the end of the dictatorship. He's the first fascist, neo-fascist, or sub-fascist, as Chomsky would call it, president of Brazil. Because Fernando Collor, Itamar Franco, 
Fernando Henrique Cardoso were all right of center, you know, all of them. They only had, you know, two left of center presidents since the end of the dictatorship. Lula and Dilma Rousseff. And Lula was the first left of center president in Brazilian history, even before the dictatorship, who wasn't overthrown in a coup. And they tried, you know, they tried and failed. Yeah. Uh, just a, a few more questions for you. So uh, you write the, that our Brazil Wire reports that Workers' Party President Gleisi Hoffman has questioned the Bolsonaro government's uh, authority to push through these last minute sell offs of the energy sector of Electrobus, which just happened, as and Lula described it as selling it for a banana. Lula has vowed to reserve Bolsonaro and Geddes's uh, privatizations if elected in October in what he calls a restoration of sovereignty. Is it that simple? Could Lula take power and simply deprivatize Brazil's energy sector? Yeah, I think this is something that they hide a lot in the U.S. news. There are governments that re-statize privatized businesses all the time. They've been doing it in Argentina. Argentina re-statized its energy company and its national airline under Fernandez in the last year or two. So yeah, it happens all the time. They try to pretend in the U.S. that once it's done, you can never undo it. You know, but that's just PR for big business. So yeah, I'm pretty sure he'll be able to undo a lot of these privatizations. Uh, and it is a sovereignty issue because most of Brazil's energy comes from hydro. So if a foreigners take over the energy, they also take over a large part of the water supply and a large part of the land because some of these um, lakes caused by hydroelectric dams are like the size of, you know, Lake, um, Lake Erie or something. So also in the New York Times article, as we started this conversation, there was what New York Times was a cheerleader of the far right in Brazil, consistently reporting on alleged corruption by Lula and Dilma, contributing to the Workers' Party losing power in the few days prior to Bolsonaro taking power. Suddenly, the Times shifted and had this kind of mea culpa reporting uh, uh, that's suggesting that maybe Bolsonaro and the court system that was supporting him was what was really corrupt. Yet this week, as we were discussing earlier in a front page story titled Bolsonaro's New Ally, and you've had issues with that statement, Bolsonaro's New Ally in questioning Brazil's elections, the military, the Times Brazil bureau chief Jack Nikas writes, President Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil has for months consistently trailed in the polls ahead of the country's crucial presidential race this October, and for months he has consistently questioned its voting system, warning that if he loses the fall's election, it will most likely be thanks to a stolen vote. Have you seen any signs since Bolsonaro took power that the Western media, you've been very critical on our show of both the New York Times and The Guardian, uh, that the media of the global north is shifting away from its support of Brazil's far right and privatization of the Brazilian uh, economy? Oh, yeah. I'm Okay, look, they haven't shifted away on its support for the economy, the way the economy is being managed. But they have transformed, I wrote something for fair about this, like, during COVID crisis. They've They've transformed Bolsonaro into this kind of international clown character. So none of these newspapers are going to say openly that they support Bolsonaro at this point. He's a laughingstock. He's just a clown. He's just like, even though like he was the international COVID-19 boogeyman, but he was basically just doing the same stuff that Trump and Boris Johnson were doing. 
you know, but they transformed him into the boogeyman. So he's an international buffoon, clown-like character. <clears throat> so they won't say they support him, but they will say they will continue to support all of the economic measures. So one last question for you, Brian. We have been speaking with, uh, we're very proud to have as a correspondent in Brazil, Brian Mir. Uh, his most recent writing includes the Brazil Wire article, Brazilian Army Resumes Election Threats. And uh, uh, Brian edited the spring 2022 edition of Lumpen Magazine, which is titled The International Issue, and you can find it right now, download it at lumpenmagazine.org. And Brian, I actually have a question from hell for you today, and that's only because, uh, well, uh, the question from hell is the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response, and I think that there might be a section of our audience who is listening right now that will hate your response to this question. Your contribution to the spring 2022 edition of Lumpen Magazine is titled No War But Class War, a conversation with Hussein Dogru, the co-founder and head of production at Redfish Media. You write that shortly after a phone call that you had with Hussein that is uh, basically transcribed in the article discovered that due to being partially funded by the German-Russian video on-demand news agency Ruptly, R-U-P-T-L-Y, the EU announced it was going to shut down Redfish, erase all of its social media posts, and freeze its assets. Hussein told you that the uh, West was going really insane and that the war could end, the war between Russia and Ukraine, if the West just said, we will not expand into Ukraine. People can read that entire piece again in the spring edition of Lumpen Magazine, which they can find at lumpenmagazine.org. That said, you are in Brazil, and we are not getting any kind of reports on how the rest of the world is reacting to what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. How, uh, how are you, how are Brazilians reacting to the war in Ukraine? How the people that you have spoken with, how are they reacting to the war in Ukraine? First of all, uh, I finished editing that lump in October of last year, right? And so it took a while to go to press. As the, you know, the, the day we were going to press, the war started, or the police action, whatever you want to call it. Or though, I, I mean, you can describe it a million ways. The war, you could say the war started in 2014 too. But, um, and at, by coincidence, I had a phone call from Hussein uh, telling me this documentary project I'd pitched to them was canceled because they were being shut down. And so I, he sent a series of audio messages. I'm like, can I just transcribe these so we have something about the war in Ukraine that breaks the U.S. mainstream media narrative. It's like, sure. So that it wasn't exactly an article. That was a transcription of a, a few WhatsApp audios. OK. Um, in Brazil, most people on the left believe that this conflict is going to weaken the United States Weak and weaken Europe's, Western Europe's dependency on the United States and usher in a kind of a new period of multipolar world similar to, you know, uh, before the end of the collapse of the Soviet Union. They don't necessarily trust, they don't trust what the US is saying about it or what Western Europe is saying about it. They don't like NATO very much. I'm constantly accused on my Brazilian show of doing propaganda for the U.S. when I say I'm, a, I'm opposed to it in general. I'm just, I agree with the, 
Hussein's assessment. Redfish got some money from Russia, but it's an anti-war, anti-fascist, you know, video production company. You can go and if you could find any of their videos anywhere anymore, there's plenty of them that were very critical of Russia and Putin. And the only coverage they were doing at the time they were shut down in Western Europe was filming anti-war protests in Russia. But, but anyway, um, I'm accused of being, you know, pro-U.S. or pro-NATO in the U.S. in Brazil. When I say I'm against the, I'm against the war I'm, because it's just middle, it's just working class kids who are dying on both sides. It's never the people who run these wars that uh, that suffer, right? It's the same thing with the sanctions. The sanctions against Iraq killed half a million children in the 1990s. They had nothing to do with Saddam Hussein. So. Uh, my take is that I'm against any kind of war except the class war. In Brazil, a lot of people, I even know people who are like openly rooting for Russia. And it's pretty much the same from what I understand in India. You know, in a lot of countries around the developing world are sick of U.S. coups, sick of U.S. neoliberalizing their economies and looting all of their natural resources and stuff. And even though Russia is not a left-wing country at all. Um, they see this conflict as something that's going to weaken U.S. imperialism. And for that reason, some people I know are even actually like cheering for Russia as if it were a, a football match, which I complain about all the time. I think that's bullshit. <laughs> you know, my dad, you know, fought in Vietnam and died of Agent Orange related cancer. And one of the last things he ever wrote for some times, uh, it was a column, an op-ed piece saying, at the time when the poll showed 90% of Americans supported the first Iraq war, he wrote a column saying, why am I 10 percenter? You know? And one of his reasons was it's always working class people who die in wars. And uh, I, I like to um, live by that you know, take on, on wars, and I apply it to this one that's going on right now, too. Brian, it's always, always a pleasure to hear from you. I had a wonderful time hanging out with you at Lachette's last year. It's something that I won't forget. We ate far too much food, and it's it's just great to hear your voice again. We'll have you back on sooner than a year from now, I promise. I'm looking forward to speaking with you again, and uh, take care of yourself. I hope that all things work out work well for you. You too, Chuck. I'm just so glad that you're healthy again. And I wish you luck, and I hope we can be drinking in, in, you know, pretty soon again. Yeah, I hope so, too. And uh, uh, when I do see you, I'll tell you all the disgusting parts of my health. It's really gross, dude. you got to make sure that you don't, do not ever get what I have. I mean, it's, it's disgusting on so many different levels. Maybe you can explain it over a plate of smelt at the Shets, <laughs> like I had with Dorsen. Exactly. All right, great speaking with you. Great to hear your voice, sir. Take it easy. Take care. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. If what you just heard from This Is Hell correspondent Brian Muir on the possibility of a coup in Brazil and everything else that he was saying about what's taking place there in Brazil and internationally, if that was in some way enlightening or, you know, uh, deprogrammed you from having a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learn something or to realize that yes this really is hell show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus patreon podcast which streams live on thursdays at 10 a.m chicago time and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support 
for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? <laughs> we have lots of responses Sweet. to get through. So. How about half of them now and then half afterwards? Okay, I'll try All right. and guess how much is half. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so Facebook, it's hard for me to figure out like which ones are first. There's something really crazy going on with Facebook. Okay, so... Yeah, Catapone says that the crime they're getting away with in the name of national security is capitalist cannibalism. Eat the rich, one mofo at a time. Lol. I like that one. Yes. Jeffrey Josephus Dorshin says occupying land stolen from the Chamush and Gabrielino people. Uh, Clearly in Southern California. Richard H says or Rich H says aggravated mopery with an intent to gawk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hate how gawking is called rubbernecking in Chicago. I, drives me nuts. <laughs> Neil C says MK Ultra self study. <laughs> nice. Nice. And what this week's question is again, what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? Kim G says white lies. And I think that's it for Facebook. All right, so we'll get to Twitter afterwards, uh, after Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. The person with our favorite answer, again, to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, and you can still tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. Uh, Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell and again if you want to help us climb out of that debt and we are paying our entire staff right now a living wage so we need your help more than ever if you want to help us climb out of that debt you can subscribe to our patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell become a subscriber to this is hell on patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly patreon podcast which streams Every week and his podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. And you will also get a special discount and a code word. Uh, so you can have a special discount on all of our stuff that you can find at this is hell.com when you click on support. On Thursday's Patreon, before I read Laura Basu's Open Democracy article, Attention Deficit Disorder, the Anti Capitalist uh, Condition, I was certain. And I apologize to my girly, but I was certainly certain that I was going to discover that my girly, the love of my life, uh, has ADD. I was certain that once I read this article, I was going to determine she is the one who has ADD. Then, while actually reading Laura Basu's article, which we discussed during an interview with her at the beginning of this week's shows, I learned that it was not my girly, it was me who has a far greater likelihood of having attention deficit disorder, as I apparently have many of the telltale telltale signs of ADD. So this week on Patreon, I will reveal exactly why I do think I have the disorder, or maybe it's not me that has a disorder. Maybe it's not me that is afflicted. Maybe the real disorder under capitalism is 
not having ADD. Also on Patreon, we will be sharing another classic interview we unearthed from our archives that is currently not available online anywhere. And that interview will be our July 6th, 2002 interview from nearly 20 years ago, a conversation with Edward Hammond of the Sunshine Project on their, at the time, just-released report, Pentagon Program Promotes Psychopharmacological Warfare. The Sunshine Project was, as in past tense, an international NGO dedicated to upholding prohibitions against biological warfare and particularly to preventing military abuse to, of uh, biotechnology, where, and this is where Edward Hammond was the director. Get this, the report, again titled Pentagon Program Promotes Psychopharmacological Warfare, was released on the 4th of July in 2002. And this will begin a series of not-so-patriotic classic interviews that we will be uh, featured on This Is Hell's Patreon podcast. Uh, so, uh, in fact, you, if you do subscribe to our Patreon podcast, you get access to hundreds of monologues by me that have never aired anywhere else but Patreon and hundreds of interviews that cannot be found anywhere else online. And you will want to hear this one because, as Edward explained back then, based on extensive review conducted on the medical literature and new developments in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, the report concludes that, according to the Pentagon, the development and use of psychopharmacological weapons is achievable and desirable, as the uh, Sunshine Project found back then, again 20 years ago, quote, these mind-altering weapons violate international agreements on chemical and biological warfare as well as human rights. Some of the techniques discussed in the report had already been used in 2002 by the U.S. in the War on Terror. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live Thursdays and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. And again, please subscribe because we really want to continue paying the crew a living wage, and we cannot do that without your support. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell live from Hangover Country. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. One more time. The insurrection. What a show. I don't know about you, but a little thrill goes through me every time the fates dangle the possibility that one or more Trumps or Trump followers or Trump clones or just all-around fascists might come in for some suffering. So just imagine my giddy ecstasy watching the opening ceremonies of the January 6th insurrection hearings. I know it's cheap entertainment. I know in the larger scheme it won't change things for most people harassed by the whims of capital. But you should know, I also like movies about giant monsters smashing miniature cities. And porn. I like myself some porn now and then. As a reminder that sex still happens somewhere, although evidence of it in my personal life seems to have been expunged as though from a crime scene cleaned by a brilliant, obsessive, compulsive serial killer. And let me assure you, I'm done 
feeling even a twinge of envy that the fascists got so close to staging a coup d'etat by storming the nation's capital. I mean, these folks were operating under a delusion that their fat fascist Orange Julius was a rightful something. Had the left done anything like this, it would have at least been for a legitimate reason. The right has been building power over the last half century by feeding a gullible, misdirected base, lie after lie, each more inane and insane than the last. This is not to say that the left hasn't aided in the project with certain clownish antics, but blaming the clownish faction of the left for the right's success in peddling conspiracies is like blaming clowns for your uncle's phobia of cream pies. And your uncle organized a rabid, armed militia of vigilantes against anyone suspected of potential pie-throwing. And that is, of course, not the responsibility of the hero who put a hateful Anita Bryant in her place back in the day with a well-aimed dessert. Face it, your uncle's a he's a basic a-hole. That's a condition he has aspired to. He's taken his personal paranoia and whipped it into a mob movement. Meanwhile... The left is accomplishing the unionization of Starbucks baristas in a growing number of cities, and that's no small achievement. The labor movement seems to be back on its grassroots feet again, thanks to the Overton window expanding to allow in general anti-corporate discourse, in part aided by the same crisis of capitalism that is the only root of the right-wing forest of delusions grounded in any sort of reality. The left can win back workers and other precarious demographics the Democratic Party seems to have been intent on losing since the early 90s. An astutely organized left can build power from here, community and workplace power, as well as electoral political power, assuming it avoids too many casualties from secret police infiltration and the circular firing squad doctrine is so often succumbed to in the past. So I'm not jealous of the right run amok. Many of them are people of decent means, and all were intoxicated by the opium of the conservative movement, fascism. Anyone, even fat fascist Orange Julius or pocked poxy loaf of head cheese Steve Bannon can get a mob drunk enough with fascism to do damage. It takes real, legitimate anger at an institution, rage inspired by video of any number of lynchings, for example, to get a great mass of people out in the street standing up to police violence, police violence against those protesting police violence yet. Talk about adding fuel to the fire. Not jealous. Not experiencing any FOMO. Just ready to eat my popcorn and enjoy these chumps getting exposed and spanked by reality once again. Fox News is so butthurt, they won't even air the hearings. Which is weird, since they've said so often that it was BLM and Antifa doing it all. You'd think they'd want to take advantage of the occasion to show some proof of that obvious pathetic bubamisa, but no. They decided to have their number one fascist mouthpiece, Cucker Carlson, take up the time telling stories about bad people undermining American values, which in his simple mind is anyone to the left of the dictator of Hungary. I was jolly watching that opening salvo of the massive ammunition storehouse the January 6th committee has been sitting on. I love the straightforward subtext beneath every iota of proof that the insurrection was an attempt to stage a coup 
incited by Donald J. Trump and aided by some of the most disgusting people alive in and out of government, I was heartened and delighted to hear the amoral Ivanka testify against her father. I was gripped by the testimony of that sexy blonde cop and that smirking British documentary journalist. By the way, when he was talking about breaking for lunch, he said they broke for tuckers. Tuckers, as in tuck, as in eat, not for tacos, as one DC Twitter account misheard it. What good will it do? Maybe none. But what good does it do when Godzilla demolishes a skyscraper? What good does it do when, at the end of Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, the bastards machine gun the leadership of the Third Reich? What good does it do for me to shower all the earth with my seed? Makes me feel good. It contributes to my, uh, what you call, self-care. And you got a duty to care for yourself, because if you're not in decent condition, you can't help anyone else. You certainly can't help in the people's fight. If you're moping all the time, which is a condition to which I fall prey too often, government is a resource that should by rights belong to the people. It's a tool for achieving collective goals. No wonder Buckley and Reagan and all haters before and after them constantly peddle the shrink government till it can be drowned in a bathtub and throw the dead baby out with a bathwater philosophy. Let's not be fooled. We have to take all our resources back. It all belongs to us, regardless of what legal and rhetorical fictions they contrive to try to sway the populi otherwise. And as pyrrhic as the victory is when the lesser fascist beats the greater in a multi-hundred billion dollar election, fighting the notion that the people don't deserve any voice but the voice most deluded and vile is a worthy cause. Whether we can transform a tool founded by bougie colonial would-be aristocrats is an open question. But even if we can't, we need to solidly instill the right of the people to advocate for themselves under any regime. Any rhetoric designed to contradict that right is ripe for trashing. Any person who actively attempts to manipulate, negate, or steal our plebiscites and people's power is ripe for burning in effigy or otherwise. And yeah, nothing may come of these hearings. But as I said last week, fiction and reality tend to shapeshift these days, wearing masks that not only resemble one another, but move from and transform the faces they disguise. The cosmos is an eternal dance of masks. When you get down to it, each thing is a mere fragment of the entire masquerade. What good are these hearings? As Mary Tyler Moore, George Papard, and a toucan once asked, what's so bad about feeling good? You might as well ask, what good is dessert? What good is watching whales? What good is Mardi Gras? No good and all good. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So, any plans for the weekend, Jeffy? Let me see. Uh, wait, there's a weekend? <laughs> That's really a long way away, man. I've got to read a friend's script about spies, I think. That's about it. The uh, There used to be a 7-Eleven over here at the corner. It's now gone. It has been replaced by a fish market. And uh, when I when the 7-Eleven was there one time, I went inside and to get some lottery tickets because uh, that's the way my finances work. My portfolio is filled with them. Uh, I told the guy, uh, have a great weekend. And he looked at me and he said, weekends are for the week. <laughs> hey, is that, that's not the 
that Sarabundo yeah, yeah, fish right. market. Oh, my God, that's the worst fish market ever. Oh, it's the worst, and it was bad from the get-go. From the day it opened up, it's always been really horrible. Like, there, there are far better fish markets on Devon than that one. I don't really try. I, I, I hate to be, well, I'm going to be a, <laughs> a little bit nationalistic about this. Okay. The Japanese and Koreans treat their seafood really well. They keep it cold. They keep it fresh. They eat it right away. They eat it raw. Uh, Mexican stores and Indian fish markets, not so much. They just seem to like throw stuff in the freezer or not really care about how long it's sitting out. I don't know, maybe because they're going to cook it or dry it, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, uh, you can uh, you know email any complaints about that comment to Jeff Dorchin. Yes, you can. You can attack me. You can tell me, oh, Indians take great care of their fish. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeffy. I have some corrections I need to make, so uh, let's. Uh, so uh, let's. Well, you know, I might come to the thing, so let's meet over uh, some Indian sushi. Oh wait, Chuck. Yes. The thing about rubberneckers and Chicago. Yeah. You've only heard that. I've heard rubberneckers else elsewhere. What I haven't heard is looky-loos. I think <laughs> Chicago is the only place I've heard looky-loos. <laughs> I like how Looky Lou's is not gender specific. It could be anybody who is yeah. named Lou. That's the part exactly. I like. It's a very equal. Or who's peeking, who's or who's craning their neck to Looky. Looky. Looky Lou. Jaffe. Yeah. Until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and give us the rest of the answers that have been given to us by our listening audience. This week's question from Hell. What crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? So on Twitter, Megathrust underscore Earthquake... (laughs) says mopery okay the thing that's our second response about mopery yes it is rich h also said aggravated mopery with an <laughs> intent to gawk and i believe rich is a uh, looky loo <laughs> indeed looky loo i like that too okay hypocrite reader sent a photo that says rare photo of alex composing this week's question from hell and it's an fbi agent <laughs> on the macbook but we have to let everybody know that Sebastian is now writing the question from hell. So that picture of the so, FBI agent is, is actually really Sebastian. Sebastian. Right. Yeah. So mistake yes. there. I understand that. Which... No wonder he's getting citizenship here. He's an FBI agent. Exactly. Clearly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I honestly, I knew somebody who was a, a history student. They told me they studied like the police and surveillance. And I was like convinced that they were an undercover <laughs> cop after that. Okay. Uh, Peoria B- Peoria Bummer says uh, cyberbullying <laughs> is the crimes they're getting away with in the name of national security. Okay. Gregory Knapp says the crime of the century. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, Nick E says creating and maintaining a booger pile. Gross. Personalized austerity, nonstop bringing on New York. There's, <laughs> uh, there's, there's more than one booger reference in this week's question from Helen. It's really kind of irritating to me, but go ahead. Moping and boogers yes. are, are, are national crime, crimes? Gross. I don't know. Okay. Uh, third Cloud 
says daily methane emissions. <laughs> and see, that's the that's second. That's the second fart question. Exactly. <laughs> too. <laughs> What's going on I here? I don't know. Okay. Sam. It's the, this, it's the uh, question from Hell Echo Chamber. Yeah. So what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? Uh, Samskin Apostle says stealing my neighbor's car. <laughs> All right. That's the first one with that. <laughs> Jamie K says procrastinating. That's good. And I think I left the best one for last right. with Anarchademic says, what crime are they getting away with in the name of national security? Breathing out loud. <laughs> Breathing out loud. I like that one too. Uh, so the ones I like most are Breathing Out Live by an Academic. That is a really great answer to this week's question. From also, Kim G saying White Lies. Neil C saying MK Ultra Self Study. Braden S saying I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence, which isn't that great. But I just want to point out that Adam D replied by saying Nicholas Cage already had the Declaration of Independence. And then Braden S replied with then I'll steal it from Nicolas Cage. Rich H saying, aggravated mopery with an intent to gawk. Yia C saying, capitalist cannibalism, eating the rich one mofo at a time. Warren L saying, the usual thought crimes, what the president doesn't know gives him plausible deniability, which is exceptional. Jamie K saying, procrastinating. Peoria Bummer saying, cyberbullying. Gregory K saying, crime of the century. But... I'm going to go with an academic. An academic, you are the winner of this week's question from hell for responding to the question from hell again, which is what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? Breathing out loud, which I believe is a protected constitutional right. Congratulations, an academic. All you have to do is send us your mailing address and which piece of this is hell swag that you want. I'll, you can find it all right now by going to thisishell.com. Slash, uh, uh, no, and click on support. This is hell.com, and then click on support. You can check all of our stuff out right now. And if you are a Patreon subscriber, remember you get all of that stuff for a $5 off of the special word that we only give to our Patreon subscribers. So, congratulations, you are this week's winner. My answer to this week's question from hell what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? Well, it's only one crime, uh, but it entails numerous things. The crime I'm getting away with in the name of national security is holding, as in possessing, as in weed or shrooms or whatever I can get my hands on. Because if I'm not high as hell on a regular basis or tripping balls every so often, none of us are really safe. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Thanks to this week's producers, Dan Hill, Lindsey Gorey, Sebastian Vupper, and as always, thanks to Alexander Jerry. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth, Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History, and to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood just because. And for those of you who may remember Richard Norwood as a producer and board operator here on This Is Hell, he is returning on Monday as he is... Uh, very kind to be substituting for Dan and Sebastian, who are going to be busy on Monday. Lindsay, who are our guests scheduled to be on next week's show? Next week, we have Reese Jones, author of Nobody is Protected, How the Border Patrol Became the Most Dangerous Police Force in the United States. Reese is a professor and the chair of the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Hawaii. So he's getting up at 5.10 in the morning to do that interview. 
That's insane. Wow. That's insane. So we get to hear his bright and early thoughts. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Susan Paulson returns to This Is Hell. This time, Susan will be discussing her contribution to the new book, The Case for Degrowth. Susan's essay is entitled The Potential of Strategic Entanglements. Susan is professor at the Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Florida. Thanks to Nathaniel for suggesting her, I guess. Nathaniel's the editor of that collection, so I don't know if I should really be thanking him. All right, and then the third person is writer and freelance journalist Kamala Thiagarajan, who wrote the Wired article, India isn't ready for a deadly combination of heat and humidity. Well, I guess we're feeling that <laughs> right now here, too. <laughs> yeah. And we're also going to have another installment of Seb Soapbox, producer Sebastian Vupper's uh, discussion on history. We, uh, this week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi, of course, the moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Uh, I just wanted to clear up something I said earlier on today's show. So we are going to have unofficial office hours this evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood today, Wednesday, June 15th. We are then going to have one more unofficial office hours on June 30th. I mentioned another date earlier, but I just remembered that I will be in the midst of a disgusting medical procedure at that point in time. So we're going to have two more unofficial This Is Hell office hours tonight, June 15th, and then again on Wednesday, June 29th, actually. It's June 29th. So, see, I'm still getting it wrong. Unofficial office hours, Wednesday, June 15th, Wednesday, June 29th, and then we're back with official office hours on August 24th as all of my procedures and surgeries should be done by then. Don't forget on July 23rd, it's the opening of the This Is Art Art Show, which is sponsored by us here at This Is Hell, and that's going to be happening during Carrie's Lounge's 50th year in business celebration, and then on Saturday, September 17th, we are going to have the closing of the This Is Hell sponsored This Is Art Art Show during our 26th anniversary party, our listener appreciation party, which will feature music, food, and a raffle. Again, that's on the last Saturday of of, uh, fall, which is Saturday, September 17th. And again, if you have an artist, uh, or if you are an artist or have an artist you would like to suggest for the art show, or if you are a musician or would like to suggest a musical act to perform during the party, or if you would like to donate something to be raffled off during the party, you can contact us at chuck at thisishell.com. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com when I will be revealing why I believe I have ADD. And, uh, and an interview from uh, 20 years ago from that was a report that was released on the 4th of July 2002 on psychopharmacological warfare by the Pentagon from the Sunshine Project. And we'll be uh, playing that interview with Edward Hammond, their then director. Uh, that'll be tomorrow during Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. 
For more interview help and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>